Our text today is found in Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. It's here that our Lord gives us his prayer, which has been the content of our three-part series entitled, The Lord's Prayer. We've been walking verse by verse through this prayer and allowing ourselves to be drawn both deeper into prayer, but also into God's will for us, God's program in this world, God's purposes on earth. And today we continue beginning in chapter 6, verse 12, as we make our way to the end of the Lord's Prayer in this third part. In the opening lines of his little book on prayer, Richard Foster says that to pray is to change. To pray is to change. And what a gift of grace that God gives us that in prayer we can be drawn deeper and closer into his will, further and further into the fruits of his spirit of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What a gift that God gives us prayer so that our will might be bent a little bit more toward His. We began our journey in this prayer a couple weeks ago with those opening words, Our Father. When we began praying to God, we began with the words, Father, because these are the words Jesus taught us to address God. We saw that God calls us to call Him Father because we are brought into an entire history of God's children. And as we call God's Father, we're reminded that we are one of God's children. And like so many of the phrases throughout this prayer, even that first one says something about us, even as we say something about God. Each time we say something about God in this prayer, we find that we're actually and also talking about ourselves. To call God Father is to confess that we are his children. To address him as the one who is in heaven is to admit that we are here on earth. To say, hallowed be your name, is to make a promise, a commitment, to to not profane his name. To say your kingdom come is to say, mine doesn't need to. And to say your will be done is to say that my will is not near as important as yours. And to ask God, For our daily bread is to admit that we cannot provide it for ourselves, that everything we have is from the gift and grace of God. And so here we are today in the midst of what we've called the we petitions, or the the petitions in this prayer about us. You see, it started with you petitions, petitions about God, right? Three of those, that His name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, that his will would be done. Those are where the prayer is to begin if we're to follow Jesus' example, this model prayer. We begin by talking to the Father about the Father. Hallowed be your name. We want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done. The prayer then moved to the we petitions, the first of which we looked at in our last message. Give us this day our daily bread. Coming to verse 12, the prayer, the model prayer continues by saying, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. You see, not only can we ask 
for God to provide for us. We can ask for him to pardon us. I wonder today, which of the two comes more naturally to you? I don't have a problem remembering to pray for the things that I need. Most people don't, it seems. We're pretty good at asking for what we need, for the things that we lack. Hunger pains come back around like clockwork, reminding us that we need something to eat. Praying for pardon isn't quite as popular, is it? I don't have any problem remembering to pray for daily bread. It's easy to forget to pray for daily pardon. Maybe we would do well to allow that cycle to become more intertwined as it is in this prayer right next to each other, so much so that when we think of hunger, we think of forgiveness. When we think of grace, we think both of God's provision and of God's pardon. Here in this fifth petition, we confess that we are sinners, that we are debtors before God. It's been a central tenet of Christianity from the very beginning, that we acknowledge that we are sinners. And we might even say that this really functions as the climax of this whole prayer. It's all building up to this moment when we say, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. It may be strange to you, actually, to hear the word debts and debtors. That's the best words we can come up with to translate how this prayer appears in Matthew's gospel. In Luke, it says, forgive us our sins. It was the Church of England who translated it to be, for if you forgive others their trespasses. And so many people have learned, especially those churches which have stemmed from the Protestant tradition, forgive us our trespasses. And certainly the reality that we have transgressed or trespassed against God and others is helpful. But this idea of debt, not just financial debt, but personal indebtedness to God is the best use of the words that we have here, which is why many and most of today's translations continue to give us, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. But either way, we're aware that what the text is getting at, what the word is referring to, is sin. That brokenness, that pollution that exists in the human condition as a result of our rebellion from God. And here at the high point of the model prayer, having asked for God's provision in our daily bread, we are called to admit our need for forgiveness. And repentance has always been right at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. The admission that we have fallen, that we are sinful people, that we need forgiveness. And somehow, even with repentance at the heart of the Christian faith, it's in rare form amongst God's people that we would be willing in all aspects of life, in every mistakes we make, in our relationships with others, in our workplaces, in all of our endeavors to be people who welcome repentance. You go looking around in our world when people make big mistakes and listen for who and how often people are willing to admit they messed up. I was wrong. I made a mistake. We are so bad at confessing 
our shortcomings. As Christians, that simply should not be the case. Repentance, the admission of guilt, of wrongdoing, of our inadequacy before God, is at the heart of our faith. The whole Christian story is we're not good enough, but God is. And yet somehow we don't have problem praying for daily bread. We just have problems praying for daily pardon. We would do well to become people who are quick to seek forgiveness. I'm immediately reminded of two passages in Scripture. The first comes in Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36. It says, One of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him. You maybe remember this. And he enters the Pharisee's house and reclines at the table. And there is a woman in the city, we're told, who was a sinner. And when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brings this alabaster jar of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She begins to wet his feet with her tears and keeps on wiping them with the hair of her head and, and kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to themselves, If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is and who is touching him, that she is a sinner. And do you remember what, what Jesus said in response? In Luke seven forty? Jesus answers, Simon, I, I have something to say to you. And he replied, say it, teacher. Jesus tells a little parable in the middle of this story. He says, a moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. And when they're unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which one will love him more? And Simon answers, I, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus says, you have judged correctly. And turning towards the woman, he says, you see this woman? I entered your house and, and you gave me no water for my feet. And she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. It's an odd phrase, really, a, a strange use of language for Jesus. It kind of leaves us wondering what he meant. You might wonder if he's really saying that those who sin more get more love or those who sin more get more forgiveness. At the heart of this passage, what Jesus is really suggesting is that those who have a deep awareness of their need for forgiveness will receive it in full. Those who are fully aware of their deep sinfulness will come to Jesus in this way, the way that this woman does. It's our awareness of our sin that brings us to Jesus. And even though he doesn't need forgiveness, Jesus knows, as he's teaching this model prayer, that we will. He has no sins for which to be forgiven, and yet he teaches us at the high point of his model prayer to ask for our own forgiveness. 
Because this is what we will do if we are aware of our sin. If we are aware correctly of who we are before God. And if we go around convincing ourselves that we have very little to be forgiven of, or that we are just kind of almost righteous, or that we are doing a decent job, which it can be tempting to think. We might just find ourselves welcoming Jesus into our home or into our worship or into our lives and forgetting to give him the honor and reverence and and holiness that he's due to fall before him on our knees and to wipe his feet with our tears, to to break open the most expensive perfume we own and, and to anoint him in it as Messiah, the one who forgives sins. If we are people who have accurately understood who we are before God, we will be forgiven much because we know how much we need to be forgiven. And very quickly, the other passage that comes to mind we find in Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. Peter comes to Jesus and asks him, How often should I forgive someone who sins against me? Seven times? Without going into the logic of Jesus' answer of 70 times 7, I want to hear the story he tells that the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king who decided to bring his accounts up to date. And in before him comes this one who owes a lifetime of debt, more than anyone could pay in a lifetime. In fact, it's kind of a joke, the number Jesus throws out there. Billions of dollars by today's standard, more than he could ever repay. And his master, filled with pity, releases him and forgives his debt. And Matthew 18, 28 says that when the man left the king, he went to a fellow servant who owed him a few thousand dollars by today's standards says he grabbed him by the throat and demanded instant payment. Later, when the king finds out, he calls him back before him and said, shouldn't you have had mercy on him just as I had mercy on you? And the angry king sends the man away to prison where he sent his own debtor. Having been forgiven more than a lifetime of debt, more than he could ever possibly repay, it says this unforgiving servant grabbed another by the throat and said, you owe me $20. If you haven't understood the reality of your own forgiveness, it will be difficult for you to forgive others. C.S. Lewis says that to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable, Because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. Jesus teaches us to pray, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Augustine calls this the terrible petition. Because there's a link between giving and receiving forgiveness. You see, we should be quick as those who pray, give us our daily bread to say, forgive us, Father. And as soon as we have understood our need for forgiveness, we ought to understand how to forgive others. You see, there's a link between giving forgiveness and receiving forgiveness in the scriptures. Essentially, what we're saying when we say and pray and really mean it here, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven others, we're saying, deal with me 
as I have dealt with them. What a fearful thing to say to God. We look to others and we think to ourselves, she has offended me so badly. He betrayed my trust. She was the one who gave up on her commitment to me. Or he wronged me in a way that cannot be excused. He was cruel. She's unforgivable. They must be held responsible for what they've done. All the while, Jesus teaches us to pray. Deal with me as I have dealt with others. Jesus keeps linking closely together our willingness to give forgiveness to our likeliness to receive forgiveness. Or maybe to turn that around, those who have been forgiven much will forgive much. Have you been forgiven, friend? And if it were to become true that God would deal with you as you have dealt with others, what would that look like? Thank God that he doesn't, that he hasn't, that he won't. But you see, Jesus teaches us to pray first, our Father. And to say our Father is to in the same breath say we are your children. And to be one of the children of God is to be a part of his family. And to be a part of the family is to be a part of the forgiven fellowship. And to be in the forgiven fellowship is to be in the forgiving fellowship. And if you are a part of this family of God, those who have been forgiven, you must be a part of those who are forgiving. Father, deal with me how I deal with others. And now having prayed already for God's provision... And prayed here for his pardon, Jesus teaches us to pray for God's protection by saying, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Or as some translate it, do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Jesus states it in the negative, but really intending to say something positively. Like he says elsewhere in the Gospels, he who comes to me I will in no way cast out. Something negative that's pointing out the positive. We're not saying that if we don't pray this, Jesus will lead us to temptation. But by saying lead us not into temptation, we're saying you have the power to take us past all the traps. We're dependent on you. There is a tempter out there who lies in waiting and wishes and desires to take us away. Father, lead us not into temptation. Means God, lead us away from temptation. But it seems this prayer is rare also. You see, we like temptation. We want to get as close as we can to temptation without crossing the line. We want to be with temptation all the time. 
As one preacher says it, we want to dance the dance and not pay the orchestra. We want to have a little temptation in our lives, just enough to keep us entertained. We don't run from it. We don't flee from it. We find it. We get as close to it as we can. We invite it closer. And Jesus says, you ought to pray. Lead me not in that direction. Because we believe that behind the temptation that we might be led to is a tempter. Behind the lie is a liar. And the enemy who is out there and alive and active wishes to destroy our soul, to convince us that God is the real enemy. That our own little kingdoms are just fine and we would do well to build them as we please. That your will is important and ought to be advanced every day. That your daily bread comes to your table because you hustle for it and you earn it and you deserve it. So don't worry about temptation. And that's how the enemy alienates us from God. Convinces us that the real enemy is anything that wasn't our idea. And so at the end of this prayer, what we're really praying is, Oh, Father who created us, deliver us from ourselves. Deliver us from the evil one. Deliver us from the sin in this world that tempts us to believe that we can be our own gods. That the life that we create for ourselves is better than the life that you offer. These are lies. And you are the truth. So lead us away from temptation, even when we long to be near it. And deliver us from the evil one. For broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many will find it. But narrow is the gate. Narrow is the path that leads to life. And so we pray on behalf of ourselves and on behalf of the world, God, deliver us from evil from all things which maim and taint and mar the image of God in your people. Deliver us from every destructive force that enters into our world and wishes to root out peace and destroy love and break faithfulness. From all the things that cause us harm, from all the things that cause us worry, from all the things that cause us anxiety and fear. God, deliver us from everything that dehumanizes other people, that acts against your forces of redemption that works against the will of God. Father, remind us that by Jesus' death and resurrection and the life that he offers, that you have and will deliver us. So when you pray, pray to the Father. Pray that his name would be hallowed. Pray that his kingdom would come. Pray that his will would be done. And also pray that he would give us what we need. That he would deal with us as we deal with others. And pray that he would lead us away from temptation. And deliver us from evil. Both now and forever. The late Haddon Robinson, longtime preacher, professor, tells the story of a game he used to play with his children. You might be familiar with it. 
He says he would take some coins out of his pocket, handful of pennies, nickels, dimes, hold them in his hand, and grasp them real tight. I mean, just as tight as you can draw a fist, and they would try to pry his hand open. Now, according to the international rules of finger opening, once they get a finger open, it can't be closed again. And so they would go to work trying to pry those coins out of his hand. One by one, they'd dig their fingers underneath his and try to pull one finger of his fist open at a time. And when they would finally get it open, they'd finally get each finger, one, two, three, four, they'd snatch those pennies up, jump down, run away full of glee and delight. Just kids. Just a game. But so often when we come to the Father, we come interested in the pennies in God's hand. I have a big challenge coming up. Help me to do well. I need a passing grade. God, help me study. The business is at a crossroads. God, get us to the black. I need a job. Got to get money. I have an ill mother who needs health again. We reach for the pennies. And when God grants the request, we push the hand away. But more important than the pennies in God's hand is the hand of God himself. And that is what prayer is all about. And so when you go to God in prayer, the name that should come easily to your lips is to say, Father.